Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Monday, August 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Department of Health reckons with an intensifying COVID-19 crisis. Then, a project to save the Natchez National Cemetery from erosion gets underway. And an uncertain new school year is set to begin. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Delta variant of COVID-19 continues its surge in Mississippi. The state has just reported nearly 7,000 new infections over a three-day period, and experts expect case counts to keep climbing. The Delta variant is more transmissible than earlier strains of coronavirus, at least two or three times so, and a small but steady chunk of new infections are occurring in vaccinated people. At a state medical association meeting on Friday, state health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs expressed concern for older and immunocompromised Mississippians who are most at risk for serious so-called breakthrough infections from the virus. Vaccine booster doses, which doses which may help vulnerable people stave off COVID, haven't been authorized by national governing bodies. But Dobbs says that shouldn't stop doctors from, in certain cases, recommending them. This is just a red tape issue, honestly. It's it's not really a clinical issue. It wasn't designed for this scenario, the way the EUA and the FDA approval. I mean, the first thing is, is once full FDA approval comes through, and I'm hoping it's going to be within a few weeks. I really am. I mean, we're hearing some rumbles, some teasers that, that they're, they're going fast. So um, that will help. Because once you get full FDA approval, problem solved. Um, very clearly, the data demonstrates that people with, with weakened immune systems, cancer patients, transplant patients, people on immunosuppressive drugs, do not have an adequate response. And we have seen, both anecdotally in the state of Mississippi and in studies, that additional doses do generate immunity where none existed previously. So it does work. And that's how we do medicine, right? I mean, we, we use things this way because the, um, the knowledge base grows over time. And so we still recommend you talk to your doctor about it and see about getting it. Now, um, some clinics and facilities have been more comfortable than others. And, and I, I 
would like to um, just applaud those who are taking the step to very thoughtfully provide booster dose vaccines for the people who are at highest risk that we clearly demonstrate in the medical literature. You know, I, I you know, in state law, Mississippi state law, uh, for during the state of emergency and a year thereafter, you, there is um, uh, immunity from liability from good faith efforts to treat people with COVID. So, I mean, there are following public health guidelines. Yeah, as well. following public health guidelines. So, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer and yeah. um, and certainly wouldn't say, but, you know, if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do. And I think for some people, it's the right thing to do. Clearly, Dobbs remains concerned about older Mississippians' exposure to COVID, but elderly people no longer make up the majority of the state's severe cases. The age group with the highest mortality numbers, the proportion of deaths, the highest age range for deaths is now 50 to 64. It's no longer our older folks, and I think it speaks very clearly to the benefit of the older folks being vaccinated because they have actually the, the lowest amount of natural immunity but they have by far the highest rate of immunization. And it, it actually is astounding to me that now our 50-year-old people are dying at higher rates than our 65 and older. Um, it, it's pretty amazing. And then if you look at who's in the ICUs, almost all of them are less than 50. That surge in younger ICU admissions threatens to drown the state's medical system, which is already undersized relative to the population it serves. On Friday, Dr. Dobbs likened Mississippi's hospitals to toilet paper. They're an exhaustible resource, he says. You run out. Here's Dr. Mark Horn of the Medical Association. I personally had a patient last night, family friend, family member texted me, Said I got I'm in the ER with Grandma and it's been a couple hours we can't get her in the back I checked our ER board every room in the back was full five or six of them were with ICU holds everything else was full and there were 28 waiting in Laurel Mississippi waiting in our ER 28 ahead of her when she finally got back a couple hours later good triage they had done an appropriate triage on sodium was 110. All of us physicians know how threatening, that's a life-threatening problem, and it took hours to get her taken care of, not because we weren't doing our job, but because we couldn't do our job, and not because we didn't want to do our job, but because we were prevented from doing our job by being overwhelmed. A sense of pressure and strain was a common theme amongst the physicians at Friday's meeting. But Dr. Paul Byers, who's the state epidemiologist, briefly singled out what he sees as a source of optimism. Gosh, I am so encouraged by, by superintendents and by school boards that have really, and I tell you, last year they did this too, that have worked hard to put in place the best that they can, the guidance of walking that tightrope between trying to make sure that the kids are safe, but also having to deal with, with the public perception and the parental concerns and sort of the constant assault that they're under. I applaud those guys. I tell you, I know they are in a tough position, but so many of them are making the right decisions, and we've seen that over this last week. So many of them are willing to stand up and make those tough decisions because they know that what they want to do is they want to keep the kids in school and they want to keep them safe. And I applaud them. I'm proud of them for, for taking that stand. And here's Dobbs again. It's tough to be a good leader, but it's good for their kids. It's going to save lives. 
either for the kids or for the roundabout way who gets it. You know, it's it's hard to be a good leader. A little saying that my my wife and I came across, and she keeps on telling me, "You're not selling ice cream." <laughs> and and there was something that Nick Saban said. He said something about leadership. If you if you're to be a leader, sometimes people aren't going to like you. If you want everybody to like you, sell ice cream. And we're not selling ice cream. We're making hard decisions. We're you know you're not always going to make people happy, but you got to do things that are in the best interests of those who look for you for guidance and leadership. We'll take a deeper look at COVID in schools later on in the show. First, though, we'll hear about a multi-million dollar project to rescue the Natchez National Cemetery. That's after the break. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Natchez National Cemetery sits on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River. That dramatic landscape makes it one of the country's most hallowed military burial grounds. It also makes it susceptible to erosion. For a while, the Army Corps of Engineers has been keeping an eye on shifting soil at the cemetery. This spring, heavy rains turned a tenuous situation into an emergency. Uh, A large section kind of just fell off. That's David Van Meter, who's assistant director of the cemetery. He speaks with MPB's Michael Guidry. So it, it had really started to encroach on our area. This particular part of the, the bluff, the uh, western reach is what it's being called, at, at no point is it encroaching upon our, like, our burial grounds. It was encroaching on our internment shelter where we have our ceremonies. And at that point, dealing with the Corps of Engineers, I would talk with them uh, almost daily. They would come out and they assessed it. They all agreed that it could be classified as an emergency at that point. This project, when the grant was announced to come in for the Corps, for the engineers, Corps of Engineers to contract and get the security for the National Cemetery, we heard from statewide lawmakers. We heard from congressional representatives. What did it mean to to have that support on the federal level from you know Mississippi's congressional delegation that the funding came in that was going to come in and you had the support for the funding to make sure this was taken care of? It's great to know that we have that support from not only the Corps of Engineers. I have people from the central office in Washington, D.C., that was always uh, lobbying for us, and they came down, and they, we deal with them very regularly. We've had several meetings with the uh, representatives and congressmen from the state of Mississippi. They were all on board. They were all supportive, and I think ultimately they helped facilitate this so that it, it could move through the processes a little quicker. Well, the work the Corps has to do to, to, to secure the bluff and make sure that no further erosion occurs, is it going to interrupt the day-to-day activity and the services that the cemetery provides to U.S. veterans? Services will not, will not be uh, disrupted. We have taken measures to shift uh, internment services from the, the affected area to the historic side where the services were conducted up until 2005 when we got that expansion area. I've worked with all of the local funeral homes. They're well aware of the new procedures um, and they have no issues with it. 
the only disruption, and it's not even really a disruption, it's more of an inconvenience, but because of the construction and the magnitude of the construction that's going to start over there, we're going to have to limit any type of vehicle traffic on that side of the cemetery. You know, we will keep it open to foot traffic. You know, everyone can still go see their loved one's graves over there, but because of the the traffic of the heavy machinery and stuff coming in and out, we're going to have to make like a walk path. Everyone will have to park on the historic side and just cross the street to go over there. This cemetery, uh, it's a national cemetery. It is designated for veterans, U.S. veterans. But, you know, it is a rather old cemetery founded shortly after the Civil War. What does it mean to... You said that it's not that the erosion's not encroaching on any of the burial sites, but to make sure that this funding has come in to secure the the cemetery and the grounds so that these grave sites that are going and reaching two hundred years old um are preserved for families that have been visiting for generations yes i I, I agree this is uh very good for the national cemetery to shore up that particular side of the cemetery and where the bluff is and the the erosion uh, because it is very important. You know, we only have one shot to honor the veterans and their, their family members for the sacrifices they made for our country. So by solidifying that area over there and making it making it where there's no uh, additional damage that could happen in the future if there's, you know, say we have a month of rain. We will never have to worry about that over there, and that will, like, let the, the whole legacy of the National Cemetery and the, and the shrine status that it has continue on. When do you all and the Corps of Engineers hope to have this process completed, and how will the cemetery look? Will it look any different when all things are said and done? The contractor in the award was given 300 days to complete the project starting from from the day that they uh, accepted the contract, which was a few days back. So they have just shy of a year. Now, there's always caveats that, you know, if it rains for a month straight, then, then they will kind of, like, give them those, you know, rain-out days. But for the most part, they have just shy of a year to get the – construction started and completed as far as how the cemetery will look after that our shelter that's over there on that side of course will have to come down in order for them to um, be able to effectively build that wall but once once the contract's finished it's going to look like you know they've never even been there because everything is written into the contract that they will replace the sod and reestablish the turf and and i mean it the way, the way it's going to be when it's finished, probably will not even be able to tell that it ever happened. We're happy to hear that the, the burial grounds of the cemetery have not been affected and that this project will go in and secure the resting place for many, many, many U.S. veterans. David Van Meter with the Natchez National Cemetery, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, Mississippi kids head back to school under the shadow of COVID-19. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. 
You're listening to Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. This month, students across Mississippi face an uncertain return to school as the highly transmissible Delta variant of COVID-19 spreads unchecked. In dense, chaotic settings like school buses and cafeterias, masking and social distancing rules are almost impossible to enforce. In some districts, those rules don't even exist. At the same time, students across the state are still suffering the academic after-effects of last year's lockdown. The overwhelming majority of administrators say a return to virtual learning is all but off the table. So, what's the plan? This week, we pose that question to experts, decision-makers, and stakeholders throughout Mississippi. This is Year Two. Today, we welcome in Dr. Thompson Liddell, who's an infectious disease expert at Hattiesburg Clinic. He explains why viruses thrive within schools. The amount of time that people spend next to each other and the amount of people we put in a room, the more we create those connections and the more we lengthen those connections between people, then you do increase risk. You increase risk for the spread of the virus in those situations. I think that we have to balance our need for our children to be educated and to be educated in person if able because we know that that's superior we know that that's better than distance learning we found that out last year i think pretty definitively so once we make those decisions we have to figure out the safest way to do that so if we are going to go back to school then we have to do it safely and that looks different for every institution i think to some degree but One of the pieces that is most effective in helping our children stay safe and insulating them from this virus is masks. And I think that that's the big question that a lot of people had as school started back is, are we going to be wearing masks if we do start back? And I think that that is a very reasonable thing to do. I think it keeps us from from allowing our children to spread the virus to other children and to get the virus from other children. Beyond masks, then we think about the other things that we know also could be effective, and that's distancing people within the programs that they're in and just doing our best job to make every situation they find themselves in throughout the day as safe as possible. The most important thing that we can do for our children to keep them safe is to keep them from getting it at all so that they can't spread it anyway. And the way that we do that is by forming barriers around them outside of school. So we do that by vaccination and the the decisions we make while they're not in class. Are the mitigation efforts designed to protect the child from getting sick or for protecting the people that the child may come in contact with at home that may be more vulnerable to the virus? That's a great question. Really, I think the answer is both. Certainly, we worry about people who are higher risk We worry about people who are more likely to have a bad outcome with COVID, and that certainly is in our elderly population. It is in immunocompromised people, people with chronic health issues. But we also worry about children. Even though we focus and we talk a lot about our high-risk groups of people that may have a bad outcome from COVID, it doesn't mean that our children can't. And... What we're seeing is younger and younger people getting COVID. Now, we're talking about school-aged children, but a third of the cases we're getting now are under 40. 
and these are the ones that are getting sick and showing up at the hospital. So it's a it's a significant number of younger people now than there were a year ago. What is the threat for young children? You know, we've heard anecdotally about younger children being hospitalized, some being put on ventilators. Are children getting sicker from the Delta variant? Are they more vulnerable to it? Well, we are seeing younger and younger people getting sicker than we saw a year ago. There are already, prior to the Delta variant even, some unique manifestations of COVID in children. And though some of those were rare, we don't know if they're going to be much more common. It certainly seems like kids are becoming sick more often with the Delta variant. Um, I, I certainly have more concern and I've seen a few health officials speaking up about children who are getting sick in higher numbers. And I think we really have to be concerned about that. And I think that now while we are trying to parse out the data and figure that answer out more definitively, I think that's the time we need to be cautious and careful. I don't think we need to necessarily run headstrong into this and then look back and think, well, we could have done better. But of course, children over the age of 12 can be vaccinated. And as you said, that's key. But what about children under the age of 12? Should certain precautions be taken with them? I think that masking certainly would be the the highest precaution. I think that that's the most reasonable and effective precaution that we have. Beyond that, the interactions, we, we can limit those interactions as best we can. Again, that looks different in different institutions, but the way we space things out, the way we are able to group kids together in some circumstances, really just limiting their exposure to COVID as much as possible. Really, it's a decision probably to be made on the individual school levels to a degree beyond the masking. I think that the size of classrooms make a big difference. I think the amount of students per class um, and the different extracurriculars that they have, all those things need to be kind of looked at on an individual basis. Talking about masking, this is a very specific question. Are there masks that are better than others? Certainly, yes, in short. Some of the more obvious ones, I think, would be any masks that aren't solid. I've, I've seen some masks that people wear that have holes in them that clearly defeat the purpose. There was uh, a lot of information coming out about different types of masks when all of this started. I think the surgical masks that we buy are probably the best masks that we have. Also, there are a lot of children wearing things like gaiters. I really think that when it comes down to it, the mask that the child is going to wear is better than no mask at all. But if we can get the, the higher grade surgical masks for students, I think that is a reasonable goal. Dr. Thompson Liddell is an infectious disease expert at Hattiesburg Clinic. I thank you very much for all that good information. Appreciate you having me. Year two, our series on Mississippi schools and the pandemic continues tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. 
I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.